Simple Beep, Episode 6, Keyboards. Hello, and welcome back to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And today we're going to cover our first hardware topic on Simple Beep, which is the history of the Mac keyboard. A little bit like we did Episode 1, where we had the history of the Mac startup chime over time, this is going to be a bit of a tour through the ages as we go through all the various iterations of the Apple keyboard. But before we jump into that, we have a first for our podcast. We've got feedback. (laughs) Yay! We can do follow-up. So we had some good responses to our past episode on at ease. And we had one comment that was written in from listener John, who was a Mac Lab admin back in the 90s. And he says, I had one of those, quote, fantasy rooms where they had all of the Macs networked to each other and using Addies for work groups. One of the things that we had questioned about Addies was how useful it was and how especially some of the like mid-level permissions. And he pointed out a really good use for it is that like the whole purpose that he saw of the middle level of permission was not so that you could have like some weird in-between user but so that you could be the admin and pretend to be uh, the basic level user and have it look the same so you could do demos, but then also have access to all of the sort of regular Finder and Mac features. I thought that was something we hadn't thought about because we were never on the admin side of those situations back in the 90s. We were always on the student side. But I can see exactly what he meant because... uh in one of the labs where I was using a a network computer, the admin definitely was always on a projector and you didn't really have to listen if you could just watch and follow where the cursor was going. Yeah. And if they had the finder and you had something that looked completely different, you would, you'd be totally lost. Yeah. Another thing that he pointed out that was good. This was one thing that we did mention is that, you know, you don't really get to learn to use the finder. If you're using Addies, you just get to you learn how to use individual apps or learn individual skills. And he says that, you know, at the elementary school level, that's basically the point is that they're not trying to teach general purpose computing. And I can totally see that. And he says it's one of the reasons that uh, the iPads are popular in schools now. And I would imagine that they are more popular at the elementary levels rather than at the high school level, say. Good stuff. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening. And Great feedback. So today we're going to talk about keyboards. It's one of those pieces of the Mac that we probably take for granted. And we think, you know, hasn't changed much. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the changes have been gradual over years and years. And so you get a new Mac and maybe the keys have shifted just a tiny little bit. But if that happens time after time after time, and you roll back the clock all the way, you find some really bizarre things that we might not be used to. We've, we've got pictures of these in the show notes, by the way. Let me mention about show notes. So if you're listening to this episode as it comes out, you can just go to simplebeep.com and all the show notes will be there. This will be a pretty picture-heavy show note episode because it's nice to actually be able to visually compare these keyboard layouts. We're going to do our best to try to describe them if you're, you know, walking or driving and can't be looking at a bunch of pictures of keyboards as, you, as you're listening to this episode. We don't want to leave you behind, but I think that having that visual information is useful as well. 
So you can find them at simplebeep.com. Or this is our sixth episode, which is an exciting milestone because it means for the first time, one of our episodes is going to scroll off our main page because <laughs> we've got it cap- capped at five posts on the main page. And so we're going to have an episode index. Nice thing I think about this is that uh, it'll be the go-to place for show notes now and into the future. So if you just go to simplebeep.com slash episodes, we'll have a full list there with episode numbers and titles. And you can just scroll down to the episode that you're looking for or find it on the page. We hope that's a nice, simple solution. So again, simplebeep.com slash episodes. Uh, I think the first one, before we get into a Macintosh keyboard, of course, Apple was making hardware before the Macintosh. Absolutely. And a lot of the features of the Mac keyboard do go all the way back to the Apple II, which is a good starting point. And I presume this was the first time that there was any sort of standardized Apple hardware, because anytime they've seen pictures of the Apple One, they've been sort of like just boards soldered in a box, and you had to like bring your own TV, bring your own cassette deck for uh, data storage and playback. And so presumably the keyboard was DIY as well, and probably lots of variation. But the Apple II was mass-produced and had a basically standardized keyboard layout. And if you look back at the Apple II keyboard, it looks very Spartan. Like, there aren't very many keys at all compared to what we're used to today. It's a pretty plain keyboard. It's got your QWERTY layout, number keys, and then a handful of keys sort of down the left and right sides that have various functions, and a power key. Most Apple computers have had a power key on the keyboard And the one that's interesting about the Apple II is that it's in the bottom left corner and it is, unlike all the other keycaps, it's a translucent plastic. And when it's on, the power key glows, sort of a light orange color. Yeah, this isn't like indicator lights on modern keyboards that have a small green LED. The entire key is illuminated. And then there's some space between it and the space bar. The spacebar is about as big as you would expect on a full-size keyboard, but there's nothing to either side of it. There are no modifier keys, no arrows, nothing. There are two arrows. There are uh, left and right arrows, but they are side-by-side where uh, today we would find the return key. And there is a return key, but it's above them where today we would probably see uh, like a back forward slash, a forward slash key. One thing uh, that I find really funny is that um, similar to how uh, symbols are above numbers on today's keyboards, you have the exclamation point above the one and at symbol above the two. On the Apple II keyboard, there's the word bell above the G. Uh, I'm not sure what this is for, but it might be to like trigger an alert sound or something. Yeah, I think that was its use. One thing that you mentioned is the symbols above the number keys. And if you look very carefully, those symbols above the number keys are not the same as we might expect today. You you said exclamation point over one, and then at over two, but it's not. It's a double quote over two. The at is above the P. And then you go down the line, and you get to six, and you would expect the caret over six. Nope, it's an ampersand. And then over seven, you would expect the ampersand. Nope. Um, And then you get to eight and nine, and they have the parentheses instead of over nine and zero. 
actually have a funny story about this that just happened this week. My girlfriend has a Logitech wireless keyboard. This is jumping way to the future. (laughs) uh, One of the solar Logitech keyboards. And uh, we were on vacation for a little while over the winter holidays and came back. And she went to turn on her keyboard and it was dead. And she thought, oh, well, you know, it's rechargeable solar. I'll put it in the sun for a day and make sure that it's all charged up. And nope, it's just dead. Called support and they tried to like get her to open it up and switch out the batteries, but that turned out to be impossible. And they said, that's okay. We'll just send you a new one. Okay, great. So the new one arrives, but it turns out it's a Spanish Spanish keyboard layout. So it's standard QWERTY layout. And now I'm looking at it and the punctuation marks printed on the keys are almost exactly the same as the one on the Apple II here, including parentheses on the 8 and 9. And so she was trying to type on it the other day. And, you know, she she can touch type, so most everything is in the right place. But then she went to type some numbers or some punctuation and looked down and, like, the whole... <laughs> everything was off. <laughs> you know, you, you hit the... You hit the eight key, which has an open parenthesis over it, expecting it to do what is printed on there. But the software layout is still the US keyboard layout and you get an asterisk. So it's interesting. So this must have been a standard which has sort of stayed the same in some regions of the world, but not for a US English keyboard layout. I suppose that we do have international listeners and we should point that out that Most of the things that we're talking about here are going to apply to the U.S. English layouts primarily because that's what we're familiar with, not because we're trying to be American-centric or something, but just because that's what we know. That's how we know to touch type and where we expect various keys and symbols to be. So that was the original Apple II keyboard, and then there were some important modifications in the later versions of the Apple II. The Apple IIc and Apple IIe introduced keys to the left and right of the spacebar, keys that we know and love, which were the Apple keys, now we know as the command key, that you could use to do keyboard shortcuts for the first time. And on, if you remember back to the old days, you might have remembered people even in I would say up all the way through the 90s, even using a Mac when this was no longer the case, would say, oh, you know, how do you save a document? Well, you hit open Apple S. I would always think open Apple. And it would be really confusing if someone said, like, how do you how do you open this? Well, you hit open Apple open. It's like, <laughs> wait, you, you open the Apple and then you open what? No, they were referring to the actual key on the keyboard. So on the 2E and 2C, there were Apple keys on either side of the space bar, but they were slightly different. The one on the left-hand side was the, quote, open Apple key because it was just an outline of the Apple logo. And the one on the right-hand side was the, quote, closed Apple key because it was a filled-in version of the logo. And I think that they could be used for slightly different purposes on those Apple IIs. The open Apple key really only stuck around in terms of its name, I think. Um, As soon as Apple moved on to the Lisa, they went to closed Apple only on the keyboard. And then the 
whether the Apple logo was filled or outline or present at all, then just sort of changed on and off throughout the history of the early Mac keyboards. Uh, but the key got its official name, which was Command, which is how it's labeled today. In 1984, Apple introduced the Macintosh, and it had a keyboard, uh, a peripheral keyboard. The, some of the Apple IIs uh, had keyboards that were built into the physical CPU. Pretty much all of them. Maybe the 2GS had a modular keyboard. I think so. Almost all of the Apple II models usually had three pieces to, that were sort of essential to the computer. You had the, the CPU and keyboard in a single box. So it would be a big flat box, and then it would taper forward in the front, and that's where the keyboard would be. Then you would have your disk drives stacked on top of that. And then on top of that, you would have your monitor. But the Mac came out, and it had a peripheral keyboard. Uh, this keyboard had no arrow keys, not even a left and right. It had uh, no function keys, a, a row across the top. It didn't have a separate number pad, which you know accountants and other people who deal with like entering numbers and spreadsheets and stuff uh, need to use. And it didn't have a power key because the original Macintosh had a hard mechanical power switch on the back of the unit. Well, actually, lots of Macs in general up until the iMac era had physical power keys like that. And later on, you could use the the keyboard or the sort of box-mounted power key inter- interchangeably. We will get into ADB, Apple Desktop Bus, in a few keyboards. But this original Mac uh, had it like a proprietary connector port to plug the uh, the keyboard into the hardware itself. And it wasn't SCSI. It wasn't serial. Uh, some of the sources I saw called it a modified version of a telephone connector, but not like a modem port. Uh, it was a, a multi-pin port. Talking about multi-pin ports for a second, I can remember the horror when you would see one bent on the inside, like SCSI or DVI. And uh, hopefully it didn't happen to a lot of people because you shouldn't need to unplug and replug in your keyboard. And I remember being told that you couldn't plug or unplug your keyboard while the computer was on or death would happen. And I don't know how true that was. I think later on I, I got past that and I was plugging and unplugging ADB devices pretty much whenever you needed to. Uh, the, the real danger of plugging and unplugging those things multiple times was, as you said, Brian, just the danger of bending one of the pins and you could bend them back. Like you get a little screwdriver and bend them back. But if you did that too many times, it would snap off and then right off, then you're done (laughs) going back to the original Mac keyboard for a moment though. I think that the design looks very clean just because it's, it's a single box to itself. It's got the, the QWERTY keyboard layout and the number keys and the basic keys that we're used to for other typing tasks and the two modifier keys, option and command, on either side of the space bar. And it just looks extremely simple. It's, you know, it's the picture of Apple design of removing anything that's not necessary. And really all the way, because as you said, there are no arrow keys. And I presume that that design choice came down to the fact of, well, the Mac is the first consumer computer with a point-and-click mouse. So you don't need 
to use arrow keys to navigate within text anymore. You can always just reach over and grab the mouse and put the cursor exactly where you want. And I think that has a parallel in things like iOS, where they said, okay, well, we'll get to the iOS keyboard much, much later in the show. But they said, okay, you want to put the cursor somewhere or you want to you know, point at something, you don't need some peripheral device. You don't need a mouse anymore, certainly. You don't need a stylus. You don't need any of that. Just tap it with your finger. So I think it's a very similar kind of approach to moving around within text. And looking at the design of the keyboard, there's, I think, perfect symmetry uh, down the middle. And if you added arrow keys, you would either... If you put arrow keys to where we think of them today, you'd have to shift the space bar and something so it's out of the center of the keyboard. Yeah, and if you look at your modern Mac keyboards today, you don't think of it this way, but they are a little bit off-center. And one final thing about this original Mac keyboard is that um, the font used on the keycaps themselves is uh, its certainly not the font we use today, which we'll get to later. Um, It's an uppercase sans serif on the letter keys and uh, normal case uh, sans serif on the modifier keys and things like backspace and return. And as far as we can tell, it's not straight up Helvetica, despite how much Apple loves Helvetica, but it's probably a regular version of the font universe. Yeah, a very plain sans serif font, though. Nothing, you know, totally unassuming. One other thing that I didn't mention about the, uh, the Apple II keyboard, like I said, the original had just left and right arrows. And then the later ones that I was used to in elementary school and growing up, my family never had an Apple II, but I definitely used them a lot in school, was that they had the four arrow keys up, down, left, right, but they were all in a straight row. This is, you know, for people who are still VI users, this is like the way, because you know, I think they use, what, HJKL mm-hmm. as, as arrow keys in that same layout. Um, but I could barely wrap my head around having the arrow keys in that straight line layout as a kid. Cause I remember playing number munchers and you had to go up and down and left and right. And you wanted to have all four of those keys right under your fingers to you know be able to move at a moment's notice, but you really had to learn which of your two fingers were up and down and which were left and right. Yeah. It didn't make sense in like the physical space. No, you really wanted them to be in that T layout. Or I remember my family's first computer was a DOS box and it had uh, the numeric keypad. And for any games on that, you would use the numeric keypad with uh, five as down. So you, you would have three, four, five as left, down, right, and then eight as up, which is like using WASD for like a first-person shooter, except on the right hand instead of on the left hand. Lots of different uh, ways to get that directional input into the keyboard, but there was no such way on the original Mac, but that didn't last long. So after the original Mac, uh, there were a couple variations on its keyboard. The Mac Plus had a slightly different keyboard, um, and then Apple moved to Apple Desktop Bus, which was a, a connector... That was a, it was a circular round connector that had a couple pins in it, and they used it for their keyboard and mouse. And so they released a keyboard that they called the ADB, Apple Desktop Bus Keyboard. 
But in 1987, they released the Apple standard keyboard alongside, I think it was the Mac 2 and the Mac SE. And just like its name, this kind of set the tone for the beige era of Macintosh uh, and their keyboards. Um, some of the changes it brought with it were, of course, it used Apple Desktop Bus instead of some proprietary multi-pin telephone-esque connector port. Apple Desktop Bus was really a great innovation, I think, and a great advantage over DOS and Windows PCs of the same time. If you recall on those, what what is it? It's the... Like PS2? The PS2 port which always makes me think PlayStation 2. Once we got to the point where the PlayStation 2 existed, they're completely unrelated. Um, but they had those those PS2, which were like ADB, sort of a modified serial interface. You know, a, a, It was a serial connector with a particular pin standard. But every single Windows computer would have two identical ports, but they wouldn't function identically. One was dedicated keyboard, one was dedicated mouse, and if you plugged them in wrong, they wouldn't work. Unless sometimes you brought in like a third-party keyboard that didn't come with that computer, and then you would have to put them in the, quote, wrong way. <laughs> like you would have to put the mouse in the keyboard and the keyboard in the mouse, and they wouldn't work the right way. It was it was always crazy, whereas ADB, it was like you got either one or two ADB ports, and anything that was an ADB device, went in there. The other nice thing about it was that ADB supported daisy chaining, which meant that I may be jumping ahead here. I don't know if the Apple standard keyboard had a daisy chain ADB port, but later ADB keyboards from Apple, you would plug them into the ADB port on the back of the Mac, but then they would themselves would have ADB ports. So you could either daisy chain or it even acted like a hub if they had two ports so you would plug the mouse into the keyboard and then the keyboard into the computer, which meant that you didn't have a whole bunch of cables running directly to the back of the computer. It meant you had just one and then the mouse hanging neatly off the side of the keyboard. It also meant that if you were a lefty, you could just swap your mouse around to the other side because it was just attached to the left or right edge of the keyboard. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not sure if the Apple standard keyboard, the first revision of it had uh, ADB ports built in, uh, but there was a second revision released in 1990 that did, that definitely did, uh, and that second version also had uh, height adjustion, so you could uh, flip down two little feet at the top right and the top left corners and uh, raise the incline at which you type. And have even worse ergonomics, because that's terrible for you. Wreck your wrists, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, those those feet became a feature of keyboards all throughout the 90s, and they do the exact opposite of what they should. They should have put the feet at the front edge of the keyboard so that your hands rest down in a nor more natural position. But nope, they did it the opposite way. Uh, another thing about the Apple standard keyboard is that its keys were presented in the font Universe 57 Condensed Oblique. And if you used a Mac at any time in the 1990s, especially if it was a beige, like any beige Mac in the 90s, and uh, like some of the first translucent Macs, this is the font that you were used to seeing on your keyboards. It also had a power key. The standard keyboard had a power key at the top right corner. And uh, in, if your Mac supported it, 
you know, you could, you could turn it on without having to use the mechanical switch using this power key, but it also made possible something that if you use the classic Mac, you probably ran into a lot. You could force a restart by doing shift command power key. I know I use this all the time. Wait, isn't it command control power? Or command control power? Maybe it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Command shift is for screenshots. Yeah. Command control power. Yeah. That was unfortunately very necessary <laughs> yeah. for, for most of the nineties up until, well, definitely up until Mac OS eight and really until OS 10 came into being. Then uh, later on, Apple introduced its next big overhaul of the ADB keyboard, which is the Apple Extended Keyboard. Uh, it had a full row of function keys across the top. This is, you know, the prototype full-size desktop keyboard. And it had really uh, clicky physical switches and a really nice, like, key travel and spring and clicking sound. And it also introduced something that I think of as like a holdover from mechanical or electric typewriters. It had a physical caps lock. So today, if you push caps lock, it's got the little indicator light to show you that caps lock is on. But these, you would push caps and it would actually lock, like the key would stick down until you pressed it again and then it would pop back up. Just like with the standard keyboards, uh, the extended keyboard had a revision that came out at the same time. See the extended keyboard one in 1987 and the extended keyboard two in 1990. There are a bunch of people who think that the Apple extended keyboard two may not just be the best keyboard that Apple has ever made, but perhaps the best keyboard ever. And I think John Gruber is one of them. I think that he has like a stockpile of them, he said. <laughs> He's got like three or four of them in case they die. And like all the stuff he writes for Daring Fireball is done on, I guess, except when he's traveling. But like when he's at in his office, it's an Apple extended keyboard too. And yes, I've I've got one because this is the keyboard that came with the PowerMac 6100 that my family got. So one of the first generation Power Max. So this keyboard design had been around for four years at that point. Um, but this was the keyboard that came with that. And it is super clicky. <laughs> and this, is, this one that I've got right here in front of me is literally the keyboard that I learned how to touch type on. And I then dug it out of my parents' basement a couple years ago when I was going to write my dissertation and knew that I was going to be just doing a ton, a ton of typing and wanted something that was really solid and felt ergonomically good. And I went with it. And yeah, it's it's the super clicky keyboard. Uh, to use it with a modern Mac, do you have to, what is it called, an iMate? The ADB to USB adapter? I do have that. I had to buy one secondhand because those were made by Belkin, I believe. And I knew that I needed this ADB to USB converter to be able to plug in this old keyboard. And so I went looking for them. I'm like, they can't possibly be making these anymore. But I found them on the Belkin website. They let me place an order for it. And then like two weeks later, I get an email from them going, uh, we canceled your order because this product does not exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was like, why are you still selling it? So I had to go on eBay and get one. Which worked fine. But it's like, it is totally of the era of the ADB to USB switch. 
which is corresponds with the original iMac. So it's this little little dongle box, but the it's got sort of a three inch long box that's made out of transparent greenish plastic because you know it's third party; it doesn't match exactly. But yeah, all you need to do is plug in the ADB cord in one end, plug the other into USB, and it works just like any other external keyboard. That's awesome. A couple other interesting points about the the Extended 2 is that it had a modification to the power key. It's got the, quote, flat power key. So the power key looks significantly different than any of the keycaps. And I think this is on purpose because they don't want you to just, you know, like press it accidentally, even though it won't just like suddenly shut down the Mac. Um, you know, you don't want that to be sort of like a surprise. You hit the power key. <laughs> Another thing is that it had the full row of function keys across the top. So escape and then in groups, F1 to F4, F5 to F8, F9 to F12, and F13 to F15, all the way across. And you can see on mine, because it's old, there's this sort of shadow along there, which is where there used to be a little plastic overlay that came with it that would slip in those divisions between the function keys. And I guess it was for you to, like, write on what the function keys you had set them up to do. And by default, it came with undo, cut, copy, and paste on F1 through F4. And I remember those actually worked. That if you just hit the F1 key, you know, no modifier, no nothing, just hit F1 it would do undo. And so those, as I said, undo, cut, copy, paste in that order, it just completely mirrors ZXCV, the keyboard shortcuts for those, which is interesting. But really interesting that Apple thought, oh, let's put those on as defaults that actually work. And then F5 through F15 did absolutely nothing, (laughs) at least out of the box, including F13, through F15, which have these very, like, Windows PC-esque labels on them. F13 is says print screen, but it would not take a screenshot. You had to hit Command-Shift-3. <laughs> F14 has scroll lock, which never did anything. And F15 says pause, which also did nothing. Then there's indicator lights for whether that are not keys at all between F15 and the power key for num lock, caps lock, and scroll lock. Num lock and caps lock would work. Scroll lock, I think it turned the light on and off, but it had absolutely no effect in software. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as the extended keyboard, it had I did, I've been searching for the word the the group of six keys that I think were also like PC carryovers for like home end help a true backspace delete page up page down things like that yep it's got exactly those and and the top left of those is help and then the like shift you know the the second mode above help is labeled ins which i guess would be like insert insert yeah you know where you could switch the mode text entry modes to whether you would type over what was already existing or like a you know quote modern cursor enter text in between at the point of the at the point of the cursor again that's one of those things that i'm not really sure that it ever did much on most software on the mac but it was there 
after the extended keyboard 2, Apple made what looks like a minor revision to the extended keyboard, which is called the Apple Design Keyboard. That's Apple Design, all one word, camel case. There were several products at that time that used that branding of Apple Design. I remember we also had like Apple Design speakers. Oh, I remember those. Yeah. The Apple Design Keyboard came out in 1994 and was meant to be a true successor to the Extended 2. But even though the key layout looked very similar, except for the power key, which now looked like a regular keycap instead of the flat power key. This was like the very easy way to tell between these two models. The keyboard switches in the Apple Design Keyboard were completely different. So they weren't our friendly buckling switch uh, extended keyboard clicky-clicky, but they were much softer. People weren't too excited about that. This was one of the early moves to softer switches. And, you know, Apple keyboards have gotten softer and softer and thinner and thinner over the years, but this is sort of the first move in that direction. One other thing was that unlike the, uh, unlike the extended two, it only had one additional ADB port, so that meant that if you were a left mouser, you were pretty screwed because your mouse cord wasn't going to be long enough. And the cord uh, connection to the keyboard itself was hardwired. So the, the extended keyboards had a completely modular ADB cable. So it plugged, it plugged in both to the keyboard and to the Mac. But here, it's hardwired to the keyboard and only plugs in on the Mac, which we think of as probably normal now, but um, was a step backwards, people thought, at that time. So the, the moral of the story is that a lot of people got Apple Design keyboards in the mid to late 90s, and nobody liked them. <laughs> and that was when the trade in Extended Keyboard 2 began. People people kept trying to you know hold them over from an old Mac or... Uh, go out and get one used or third party or something like that. I think that brings us to the end of the, quote, classic Mac keyboard er era. We've been through built-in keyboards and proprietary serial keyboards and ADB. So once again, we are going to tell you about a product that you would have liked. This week, our product comes from comes from the mothership, Apple itself. So this week's episode of Simple Beep is not brought to you by the Power Macintosh 9600. Attention publishers and multimedia professionals, searching for the fastest, most powerful desktop computer, computer available today, today being 1998. Introducing the Power Macintosh 9600, a computer 15 times faster than the fastest 68040-based system. Equipped with the only 350 megahertz processor in its class and one megabyte of Apple inline cache, the Power Macintosh 9600-350 also comes, in, comes with a built-in 100 megabyte zip drive on some configurations and a 24x speed CD-ROM drive. The result is outstanding performance that can handle even the most complex color publishing and video editing tasks. The Power Macintosh 9600 starts at just $35.99 with configurations up to $46.99. That's got 256 megabytes of RAM, 9 gigabyte hard drive, the 24X CD drive, and that zip drive that I was talking about. And if you've got a zip drive, you definitely are going to need some zip disks. So you can get a 
macOS formatted 10 pack of iOmega zip disks for the low, low price of $179 after a $20 iOmega mail-in rebate. The regular price is $199. So be sure to take full advantage of that offer by time traveling back to 1998. Thank you to Apple and the Power Mac 9600 for not sponsoring Simple Beep. But just like the Power Mac that uh, did not sponsor our show, in 1998, Apple also released the iMac, the Mac that turned the company around. And with it, uh, there were a whole lot of changes. There were colors. Uh, well, there's one color first. It was a color other than beige. That was the most important thing. Along with colors, it also removed some legacy ports like SCSI and the previously mentioned Apple desktop bus. All the new iMac peripherals connected over USB. USB was the way of the future. It's the way of the future. Today, it's ubiquitous. Uh, or I guess universal, because that's what the U stands for. Yes, it does. <laughs> Um, and so along with the the new bus came a new keyboard that connected over USB. Of course, there was the hockey puck mouse that also went over USB, but this is a keyboard show. And the USB keyboard, of course, was translucent, bondy blue, a mix of bondy blue and translucent pinstripes gray to match the iMac hardware. It had a number pad. Um, but it did not have that like middle row that we just talked about before the sponsor break of the home insert and page up, etc. cetera. Uh, it did have half size uh, function keys across the top and above the number pad four half size keys uh, to replace that home and page up, page down. But without that block in the middle, this meant the arrow keys had to go in the main keyboard area. So this is our first Apple keyboard that has the half-size arrow keys that we're still used to today. Which I think really caused quite a lot of complaints at the time. Yeah, how was I going to play my games? This was also, you mentioned the half-size function keys across the top, and this is the reduction down to 12 function keys. Because 13, 14, and 15, which were totally useless <laughs> on the on the extended 2, um, fell in that middle zone between the main keyboard and the numpad. Of course, it launched in Bondi Blue, but as Apple released hardware, specifically IMAX in different colors, the keyboards, of course, would match with your tangerine and strawberry, etc. And then uh, I think with the blue and white G3, it matched the blue and white. But before we got to Mac Pro and aluminum and pro keyboards again, uh, there was a, quote, graphite version of this USB keyboard. One other thing that strikes me looking at the original iMac keyboard is that this is the first keyboard with the modern kind of power key on it. Again, still in the top right position of the keyboard, although it's actually the top right of the main part of the keyboard between that and the number pad on the original iMac. But it's that power button that we're used to now, which is the small circle that's flush to the flush to the case design and has the combined one zero power symbol on it. All of the previous, the ADB keyboards, they, their power buttons were in that same position, but they had a different symbol. They had a left pointing triangle was the power symbol. So this was the first time that Apple keyboards had that, I guess now universal on off power symbol to indicate the power key on the keyboard. 
and the iMac keyboard, the iMac USB keyboard, had a hardwired USB cable to go into the iMac, and then two USB, of course, USB 1 uh, ports for daisy-chaining a mouse or a zip drive if you wanted to. And the keys themselves on this keyboard were translucent, black plastic, but still with the same universe condensed oblique font. Uh, just a year later, Apple released the PowerBook G3, the Lombard model, the codename Lombard. And uh, this laptop also had translucent keys, but they weren't translucent black. They were translucent bronze. So I think a lot of people referred to this machine as the, the Browns keyboard PowerBook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Apple released the iBook later in 1999. And this is the... I think originally it was blueberry and tangerine clamshell kind of looking like a toilet seat version of the portable iMac, the iMac to go, I think was its, uh, its tagline. And these, the keys on this were kind of like mushy. I remember typing on one and they had like mushy plastic, like shallow travel and a really soft feel. And it was not great. I would have hated to write anything of length on this keyboard. This was one of Apple's first keyboards that really was not a good show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think they they've gone through several different technologies on laptop keyboards. I have very few memories of typing on any Mac laptops say prior to Lombard, but they were, you know, the the bodies of the laptops then were pretty thick. You know, the, the base of the laptop is going to be at least an inch thick. So there was still plenty of room for key, for key travel. The iBook was the first time that they were really working within very small space constraints, and it showed with these keys. Another just feature of the design is that you can, because the keys were white or almost clear, you can actually see through to the key switches, which if you hate the feel of the key switches, being able to see the mechanics of them every time that you use them would just be massively frustrating. <laughs> and again, just a keyboard show, but I'm also looking at that trackpad and it looks comically small. Oh, yeah. Another thing in the screenshot that you've got here, Brian, and we'll have in the show notes is that in this screenshot, there's two red circles they're circling these little spaces, it, the gaps between the function keys. So at this point, the function keys were still in groups of four. And these circles, I believe, are highlighting the keyboard release points. Yeah, they're little pull tabs. And if you pull down on these little tabs, the whole keyboard would pop up, pop forward and up as a single unit. And it was attached by a ribbon cable um, but you could get in, and I think that was how you could like service hard hard drives and RAM, even. Yeah, and and even the airport card, which was an option at that time. And the airport card, that was it. I think to like replace a hard drive, you had to take the bottom off or take the whole top case off. But you could get it RAM, and you could get the airport card, which yeah, like you said, was not standard. You could buy one and add one later. Actually, this is a further reason why these keys these keys felt so terrible to type on. The entire keyboard unit itself was removable and had to be thin because it was sitting on top of electronics. 
it was my freshman year college roommate who had one of these iBooks, and that was the only time I'd ever typed on one. But I remember he showed me, he actually, like, you didn't need any tools. You could just use your fingernails and pry these two switches back and lift up the entire keyboard. And the keyboard itself was very, very thin. So there's really no room for these keys to travel. Also, uh, freshman year in college for me, this feature of the keyboard, which was also present on the PowerBook G3 keyboards at the same time, you know, they were developed basically at the same time, totally saved my PowerBook. It was early in my freshman year of college, and I had got up early to finish some work before I went off to class for the day. And I was in my dorm room and I had made myself a cup of tea in the dorm microwave. (laughs) And I went to close the microwave door and I hit the cup of tea and spilled an entire cup of hot tea right onto my power book. (laughs) In panic mode, somehow, I thought clearly enough to first pick up the cup of tea. And then the very next thing that I did was I popped the keyboard off, held it very level, and then just poured all of the tea out (laughs) to the side and then left the keyboard off upside down, draining, like blew it out with like some compressed air, powered down the machine, and then just like left it for the day. And it survived. That machine still works. The battery is like totally dead, but that machine is still kicking and it could have been... A total disaster. It could have been dead because all those electronics were right under there, but there was like a solid plastic layer that prevented basically any of the liquid going through. I don't know if that was the purpose of that design, but it definitely saved my old Mac. Uh, the only other notable thing I think about this original iBook keyboard is that it was the first to use the font that Apple still uses today on their keyboards. And that font is V-A-G rounded. The V-A-G actually stands for Volkswagen A-G, which A-G stands for a long compound German word that I'm not going to pronounce. But suffice to say, it's the, uh, it's the company name of Volkswagen that makes cars. And it was developed for some of their branding. They use the standard version, so it doesn't look quite the same as the rounded version. And that means that the sort of caps at the end of each line in the font are rounded off instead of being right angles. Yeah, that was something I learned just looking this up, that Apple and Volkswagen have this font in common. Well, they both love design. I think that's that's pretty cool, actually. One of the big design differences between the, say, Lombard keyboard and the iBook keyboard was not just the change of font, but also the change of the position of the letter on the keycaps. So with, with, the, uh, with the earlier versions that had the universe condensed oblique, those letters sit sort of very nicely down in the bottom left corner of each keycap. It looks like they, because of the angle of the letters, it's like they're like sort of like snugged down into that corner. But with the new, uh, the move to VAG rounded, then all of the letters were put in dead center on the keycaps. And that's still what we see now. And then 
a year after the iBooks release, we're in 2000 now, the year 2000, Apple updated its peripheral keyboards and they called it, at first they called it the Pro Keyboard, the Apple Pro Keyboard. Of course, it was over USB. Um, it went back to having uh, full-size keys for everything, including that middle group uh, for the home end, etc. buttons. It went all the way back to F15 in the function row across the top. The arrow keys are back to being full-size. And then on top of the number pad, I think this is the first time we see dedicated keys uh, for certain media things. We have the three keys for mute, lower volume, increased volume, and a hardware eject key. Yes, and the interesting thing about that hardware eject key is that it's hard to see the angle of the photo that we have here, but I think there's no longer a power key on the Pro Keyboard, and the eject key sort of replaced it. But to have that functionality retained, this was when Apple added in basically a keyboard shortcut equivalent of the power key. Again, this won't turn your Mac on, but while you're running, you could use this to bring up the shutdown dialog box, and that's by hitting control eject. I remember recently... I think it was uh, in maybe in Mavericks that they changed the behavior of the power key, the physical power key from instead of bringing up the shutdown dialog box with restart, sleep and shut down, it just automatically sleeps the Mac. And people were complaining furiously that there was no way to shut down their Mac using the keyboard anymore. But control eject still works, even up through Yosemite, up through the latest MacBook Airs and everything. It still works. It's a little bit bizarre of a combination to hit. So on this Apple Pro keyboard, it's the exact opposite corners. The full diagonal width of the keyboard. Right. So control and eject. There's like, there are 108 keys between here and there. Um and on the MacBooks today, the function key is the far bottom left keyboard key on the keyboard. So you have to hit something that's almost the full diagonal, but not quite. So it's a little bit sort of an awkward, odd combination, but it still works. Uh, I think it's worth noting that with this Apple Pro keyboard, uh, even though we just talked about how the iBooks keys were set in VAG rounded, this one is still in the classic uh, universe condensed oblique. It's more of a pro feeling to have a a tall, thin sans serif font versus the kind of consumer-friendly, rounded-edges Volkswagen corporate font. Well, I think the message here was, all right, all you iMac keyboard haters, here's the iMac keyboard that you've always wanted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although it had a couple sort of hardware features that are either odd or not really great. Um one thing that I noticed that's a little oddity is that there's always been the question of how do we make it so that people don't accidentally hit caps lock? I think most people today are correct in saying that we should just get rid of caps lock. It's not, it's not that useful in 2015, but on this pro keyboard, there's actually a little gap between the A key and the caps lock key where there's just no key mm -hmm. so that you would actually feel the gap if you had ranged over onto the caps lock key. 
one of the other things is just the general shell and design and keycap design of this keyboard is that this was that first time in Apple keyboards where it was really easy for like dust and grime and crust to get not only just between the keys, but under the keys and then travel into the other parts of the keyboard where they're behind clear plastic and you can see them. Yeah. And, you know, if it's your own personal Mac, either, you know, you're probably taking pretty good care of it and you don't have this problem as much, or you look at it and you go, well, it's my dirt. Like, okay, fine. That's, you know, that's my dust and and grime. It's not too creepy. But I remember these and the sort of immediate successor to these keyboards were what were around in like public college computer labs when we were in college and you would walk into a computer lab and you would just look down at this keyboard and there was that whole blank area above the the arrow keys and it was just like a science project in there just like oh i can't use this <laughs> <It's> gross <laughs> so this apple pro keyboard uh also had its own kind of minor revision um, in 2003. They removed Pro from the name, even though they didn't remove any keys. It was more of a, a redesign of the the enclosure. Um, so it lost. It didn't. The original Pro USB keyboard didn't have feet, but it did have kind of like a a lever, I guess, on the bottom that spanned the full width of the keyboard that you could flip out to make it less ergonomic and and elevated at the rear. The revised Apple keyboard was a single unit. You couldn't adjust the height. Um, and it kind of brought back a little bit to the the clean lines of the original Mac keyboard. Like Ed mentioned, it was a, a solid rectangle. There weren't cutouts for where the USB daisy chain ports were. Actually, that's because they moved from the sides to the back where the hardwired cable came out, which I know angered some people. Um and it only came in white. It wasn't color matched. It wasn't black. It was uh, solid white keycaps. But it, like I said, it did have the the translucent or the clear plastic uh, shell that the keys came out of that you could still see all the trapped gross junk underneath. I'm looking at this one now. This is actually the one I was thinking of because you see there where there's the three sections of the keyboard, the main keyboard, the arrows and page up, page down keys, and then the numeric keypad. And the middle section, it's got like three levels. There's the keys themselves, then there's this sort of raised area that's still under the plastic, and then there's these like two deep channels yeah. for your bagel crumbs. And with, as far as I can tell, no other feature, like no other practical purpose. So... I never owned one of these keyboards and they, they always just, I, I just associate them with those gross memories. <laughs> yeah. I think really the only other notable thing about this keyboard is that this was the first model that also, that Apple also released a wireless Bluetooth version of. Um, I do remember, I think it was the iMac G5, maybe that this was, that this coincided with where you could get a wireless or Bluetooth mouse and Bluetooth keyboard. And I remember uh, my dad thinking that that was just the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> there are no wires. It is pretty cool, but I've actually found recently that the wireless keyboards are, ironically, more useful for laptops. 
than they are for desktops where nothing's really going to move around that much. Yeah. Because I I set my parents up with their new iMac and they've got the wireless keyboard and they went for the Magic Trackpad. And they're saying like, so they must run on batteries, right? And I said, yeah, you know, they run on double A's or triple A's, whatever it is. And, oh, well, you know, how long do they last? Well, you know, you can probably get like four to six months out of them if you turn them off when you're not using them. Oh, great. And then I realized, like, I do that all the time with my external keyboard and mouse at work where I'm working off of a MacBook Air. But if you do that and then actually shut down your desktop Mac, it it's like, help, help, I'm headless. I can't do anything. <laughs> Where's the input devices? Like, it really sort of, like, freaks out if you if you turn them off. So it's like, all right, just leave them on. The batteries will die a little sooner. Sorry. Speaking of batteries, this first Bluetooth keyboard took four double A's. So that's that's still, I think that's a lot. I just changed the ones in my one at work, I think for the first time. So they lasted almost a year, turning them off on nights and weekends when I'm not there. And I think it takes three double A's, which is kind of an odd number, but eh. So going back into laptops for a second, in 2003 as well, uh, Apple released the aluminum PowerBook G4s. We had already had the titanium, uh, but the aluminum ones came out. And these had keyboards that were kind of like the original iBook. Uh, these also had a, not as bad a squishy feel, but they were still kind of squishy. Uh, and this was the laptop I took to college. I had a 12-inch PowerBook G4, and I typed all my papers on this dumb keyboard, not really liking it the whole time. One thing I notice about the keys on this keyboard is that they look subtly rounded. They're a little bit concave. Yeah. So that like your finger fits into the key. Um, like I guess it does on many sort of like full height keys, but then they also have sort of like a mash- matching uh, like squish out along the top and bottom side. So it really does. It looks like the key has was flat and that it got sort of like smushed. Yeah, that's true. That actually was nice. I do remember that very specifically. Um, and then on the 17 inch PowerBook G4, right at introduction, it had the option of these keys being backlit. And I think that's the first time we see that on an Apple device. And that was, that was a huge thing. I can remember I've seen the keynote for this uh, event once. And that's like one of the biggest responses of the whole day is when uh, Steve like dims the lights and the keyboard lights up. Yeah. But the 17 inchers never had a numpad. And I I remember again, going back to when I was in college, had a lot of friends who had PC laptops, the the desktop replacement laptops that weighed like eight pounds. (laughs) They were just ginormous and they had, you know, full numpads on them. They were going, you don't have a numpad. It's like, well, yeah, where am I going to put it? (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I remember these keyboards had, they had sort of a fake numpad. So they had on, I'm, I'm looking at this one. I need to blow up the image because they're really, really small. Yeah. So seven, eight, nine were also faking numpads, seven, eight, nine, which means that there's a tiny seven in the lower right of the seven key. Right. So it says ampersand seven, seven <laughs> asterisk eight, eight open paren nine, nine. And then the letter keys below that 
but not in a nice, perfect grid like a numpad going diagonal because that's how the letter keys are laid out. So UIO are 456 and JKL are 123 and then M is zero. And period is small period. You know, if you were actually entering numbers, this was not going to be very helpful to you in any way. You could get much faster at just doing the keys across the top. I think uh, Dr. Drang just wrote a post about this like earlier this week. Yeah, we'll link that up in the show notes saying about, you know, like accuracy of doing numpad versus the line across the top and how fast you get at various activities. But, you know, I got fast at entering numbers with the row across the top of the keyboard. The only time that I ever turned on the numlock and actually used that numpad was for one flash game <laughs> that, again, all my college uh, housemates were like got addicted to and were playing. I'm going to find this. It's called Taunty. And T-O-N-T-I-E. And it was this flash game where the whole game played out on a numpad grid. And there were these little cartoon characters that popped up. And you had rules as to like which ones you had to hit and you had to hit like the corresponding number. And at first they would be on like the appropriate number. And then like they would shift to be where you had to like hit a number that wasn't the right spot. And then if you hit the wrong one, you would hit a bomb and you would die. And like, (laughs) um, it was a lot of fun, but totally required the numpad, uh, numpad mechanic and I finally beat the game, but it was like way later than all of my friends because I was doing it on this goofy diagonal fake numpad. So in order to engage the numpad on this keyboard, you had to hit the numlock key, and that's at F6. Uh, another thing about this keyboard that was just kind of curious for its time is that uh, the function keys have their standard like media slash hardware controls that we're used today, uh, brightness control, keyboard backlit control, volume control, uh, and F6 is mapped to numlock. But on these keyboards, F7 was uh, like your toggle, your display mirroring, as if Apple expected the majority of its laptop users to be hooked up to an external display, which may or may not be valid. Um, but they, that they'd want to switch between mirroring their display and extending their desktop so frequently that they could use a, a function key for it. Before we get to the keyboards of today, I think the last big uh, milestone is that the first MacBook, uh, the replacement for the iBook, the made out of plastic and polycarbonate, was released in 2006. And this was the first time we saw the chiclet style keys where the keyboard is recessed a little bit into the hardware and they are little island plastic keys that uh, come back up to like level with the top of the surface. When we first saw those chiclet keys, we thought, oh, check this out. You know, this is for the new MacBook. This is an interesting new laptop keyboard layout and uh, sort of key format that Apple has come up with. But little did we realize that that was going to become the standard Apple keyboard keycap style for all of their Macs starting just the very next year in 2007. Yep. So they released entirely new peripheral keyboards. Uh, they had the the Pro keyboard, probably the one that you would buy today if you need to buy a wired keyboard, 
has a full number pad, the section in the middle with full-size arrows, function keys, etc. But it's a very thin block of aluminum with these white chiclet keys. While these keys all look the same and the plastic keycap on the top is identical on all these different keyboards, the switches do vary a little bit. I noticed that going back, well, actually, sort of like four different iterations of it. So I've got a 2009 MacBook Pro is my home computer. And then I have a MacBook Air at work and a Apple Bluetooth wireless keyboard. And then my parents at their house have the wired Apple aluminum keyboard. And the keys, the, the key travel and the clickiness is a little bit different on all of them. On the old MacBook Pro, they feel a little bit mushy. And I'm not sure if that's just because they're aging or if that's because how the switches actually were from the beginning. But so we've gone to a standard look and feel in terms of the, you know, just the key caps under your fingers, but slightly different internals and slightly different feel when you're typing from these different Apple keyboards one to another. Placing my hands on my keyboard now, one thing that I noticed is uh, the little home row nubs. These came up on Accidental Tech Podcast not that recently or not that long ago, where they were talking about switching from Windows to the Mac and that these used to be on the D and K keys on a US QWERTY layout, uh, which was the Mac way, and they used to be on F and J all the time on PCs. And if you were used to that as being your you know cue for where to put your hands on the home row, you could easily wind up off one and start typing total gibberish. And uh, I actually had that problem when I went back to the extended two because it's got them on D and K. And I think, oh, those go under my index fingers because that was the PC standard that at some point came over to the Mac and now I'm very used to. And so I would put my fingers on those and I would be getting semicolons and hitting caps <laughs> lock and like everything would be totally off. <laughs> so they're on F and J with this keyboard and there are a bunch of small introductions or improvements uh, that this era of keyboards has introduced. Um, one, another one of them is that the command key from this point on didn't have the open Apple logo on it. It's just command and the little uh, glyph for the command symbol. Uh, some of the keys also got smarter with this keyboard. Uh, we mentioned that the extended keyboard and some of the earlier big bulky keyboards had actual physical caps locks. The button would lock down a position. Um, these keyboards don't, obviously. They're, they have lot, they have very shallow travel. Uh, but they tried to make it so you don't accidentally hit it. Um, so now you actually have to keep the caps lock key like pressed down for more than a split second. If it's just a little tap, it won't actually trigger the caps lock. Same for eject slash power. As of uh, OS 10.4.9, that acts the same way. A quick tap won't or shouldn't, <laughs> I should say, put your computer to sleep or eject a disk. You actually have to purposefully press down that key. The caps lock key is actually really pretty smart. It's not just you have to, it only recognizes long presses. It's a long press to turn it on and a quick tap will turn it back off. Oh, I didn't know that. That is smart. 
And that's another advantage you mentioned about the power key in the long presses. Another advantage of hitting uh, hitting control eject is that a tap does it. You don't have to push and hold. And also from that screen, if you're not used to doing this, um, because it brings up that dialog box, then in that dialog box, this is not usually the case with most dialog boxes. If anything, to activate buttons in dialog boxes, you usually have to press command and a key. But in the in the shutdown dialog box, um, if you hit R, it pushes the restart button. S pushes the sleep button, and Enter pushes the shutdown button. So I'll often be getting up to leave from my desk and. I don't have a sleep hot corner because I would find that I hit it accidentally and that's really frustrating. Yeah. So I only have one that goes to screensaver, but if I want to put the computer completely to sleep while it's got an external display attached, so I can't just shut it, you know, can't just shut the lid, just control eject S boom, walk away. Nice. We were talking about batteries. Uh, I found out that the original aluminum Bluetooth chiclet keyboard took three double A's. But in 2009, they did something magic on the inside, and uh, now it only requires two. Um, and also, there was a compact USB wired uh, aluminum keyboard for a while. Uh, it cost the same as the full size with a number pad. Um, this compact model is essentially if you had the Bluetooth keyboard that you can still buy today, but hooked it up directly through USB. And... Uh, I bought one. I had to go on eBay because they were not available. But kind of how Ed was talking about uh, Bluetooth wireless keyboards don't make sense at a desk. I I feel the same way. Um, I also don't want to burn through batteries, even if they're very efficient at how they use them. Uh, And I also don't have a lot of room on my desk for like a full number pad and function keys that I won't use. So I had to look and I found one, but uh, I really like it. So I think we've made it all the way up to the present. Let's just talk very briefly about, you know, we're not a rumors show, but very briefly, let's talk about the possible future. And also, you know, we've been going on for over an hour about keyboards, but let's also mention what this means for iOS and keyboards there. Speaking about rumors, uh, there's still a lot of smoke around the purported 12-inch MacBook Air coming out, who knows, but probably in the next couple of months. And there are some subtle changes to the keyboard if the rumors turn out to be true. And these are all, as of the recording of this show in January 2015, mock-ups and rumors. But one of the big differences is the location of the power key, which is apparently going to once again become a normal keycap and is, well, I guess it already has on the airs um, because guess what? Don't. Don't need an eject key when you don't have an optical media drive. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, they've already got... I'm staring at this old old MacBook Pro, though, that has an eject key. Anyway, uh, one of the big things is that the power key is apparently slated to move from the top right corner to the top left corner and perhaps be a one and a half width key. The thing that's interesting about this is that it drives escape out of the top left corner where it's been on most Mac and PC keyboards for a long, long time. And this is going to drive VI users crazy, anyone who relies on escape. uh, I don't see how this is a good change. Yeah, but for the normals, 
escape is probably one of the least hit keys up there. Actually, both of the keys in the top left there are probably some of the least hit keys for the average Mac user. You've got escape, which, you know, it, it works in most cases as an alternative to command period and might actually be a little bit more intuitive than that. And then you've got the, uh, the backtick and tilde key, which, you know, I use all the time because command plus that key cycles through windows within an app. Is very useful, um, but I would guess that there are many, many people who don't know that. Uh, something else: the arrow keys, well, the left and right arrow keys specifically. Oh, this is so goofy looking. Are gonna are gonna grow to be full size keycaps because I guess since the iMac USB keyboard, there's just been empty space above them, so that all four arrow keys are the same size. But on this purported 12 inch Air. Uh, the left and right arrow keys will just grow vertically to fill that empty space. But then the up and down arrow keys will still occupy the space of one square keycap divided in the middle. It looks really weird. It looks as weird as some of those, uh, you know, early 80s arrow key layouts where they were still sort of figuring out what the arrow keys should even be doing and like what functionality they had in like a line text editor where you can't go up and down. Um, this really looks nothing like any modern keyboard. I think that will be, um, if it comes out that way, you know, it's just an art- artist's rendering, but if it comes out that way, I think that would be something that even the average casual MacBook user is going to notice right away when they see that new keyboard. And then the last item about keyboards with this machine is that the keys themselves are rumored to stay the same size, but the space between the keys is going to be reduced, hopefully subtly, but likely in a way that might still throw off touch typists because they're trying to cram uh, a 12-inch screen into essentially the 11-inch MacBook Air's body by cutting, reducing the size of the bezel and, I guess, if there is such a thing as a bezel around the keyboard, reducing some of that as well. Yeah, people have mentioned this, but I just don't think it's going to make a huge difference. I mean, I was going back and forth between the internal keyboard and the extended two. Oh, yeah. And the big differences there were not being unable to touch type once I got my hands in the right position, again, with those nubs on the keys. Like, once my hands were in the right position, touch typing was no problem. And those keys are different size, slightly different shape, um, much different key travel, the entire keyboard itself is wider, you know, like that was no trouble to me. The only main thing that I had a little bit of trouble with on using the extended two on a modern Mac is that the keys along the bottom row with the space bar are different and in different places you get, you know, on you get a control key on both sides, which is nice, actually. Like, I like having that. But the thing that threw me off the most is that the location of the right command key, which, you know, you use all the time, that's muscle memory, mm-hmm. is different on the extended. Let me look here. Yeah, so if you look on any of the modern chiclet keys, keyboards, the right command key, well, the space bar goes over and is flush with the M key on a QWERTY layout. And then the command key starts right at that, right under the comma key on a U.S. English keyboard. But on the older 
keyboard. The, the space bar extends all the way through the M key, through the comma key, and halfway into the period key. And then there's the command key. It's much further over to the right because you don't need to have the arrows there. <laughs> and so I would go to hit, you know, command something. I just keep wind up hitting the space bar. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't think the shift just in the slight amount of space between the keys is going to make a difference. It's not going to be like typing on a netbook. Oh yeah. Uh, keyboard, man, thank goodness those don't exist anymore. <laughs> or like trying to touch type on an iPad screen or like trying to touch type on an iPad clamshell case that's really much smaller than a standard size keyboard. So we'll just have to wait and see if and when this mythical machine comes out. Uh, very quickly, you mentioned iPad uh, clamshell keyboard cases. Uh, one final hardware keyboard that actually has more to do with iOS than the Mac that we can mention is the iPad keyboard dock, which was... Uh, released alongside the original iPad. Was was this an official Apple product? Oh yeah. I don't I don't even remember this. First party Apple product that I don't think anyone wanted to use because it was an iPad dock, uh a hardware dock with the 30 pin connector. So it forced your iPad to be in portrait orientation that had essentially one of these uh compact or the Bluetooth style uh compact aluminum keyboard attached to it with some modifications like no escape key. And instead the escape key would be like clicking the home button. And so it affords you some things like it has command uh, option and control. So you can do things like command C for copy and that will work even in iOS, but it's a keyboard physically attached to a dock that forces your iPad to be in portrait. This is crazy. Why would you not just get the Apple Bluetooth keyboard? Didn't I, exactly even from first generation iPads, they had Bluetooth. Yeah, so that's ex- that's exactly what I was just about to say. Like, why would anyone buy this when you could get a Bluetooth keyboard? That's a swing and a miss on that product. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that's not a swing and a miss is the actual software keyboards on iOS, and of course, recently. Uh, the world has opened up with iOS 8 and you can install third-party keyboards. But for seven years, people were typing on the stock iOS keyboard. And boy, have we gotten used to them. They are second nature, just like uh, touch typing on a full-size physical keyboard. But of course, when the iPhone first came out, there was much hue and cry about, it doesn't have a physical keyboard. No one will ever use that thing. And of course, history has proven all of those pundits correct. (laughs) But there are some interesting things about the layout of the iOS software keyboard. One thing that made a lot of sense, especially before the aspect ratio of the iPhone display got taller and thinner, is that the keyboard on iOS only has the three rows of letter keys, no row for number keys. To get those, you have to switch, you have to hit the one, two, three key, and that'll switch you into the numbers and punctuation mode. And I have long complained about the numbers and punctuation mode <laughs> on iOS. My, my main complaint is that it seems to have been developed by someone who has never actually looked at a QWERTY keyboard. <laughs> And now, you know, we were talking about international keyboard layouts and the fact that punctuation differs based by language and that there are sort of different standards for where things go. But 
I still feel like they could have done so much more, especially because what I'm using now is labeled in iOS as the you know US English keyboard. So you've got a row of punctuation that goes across that matches up with the numbers one through zero, but instead of exclamation point at pound dollar sign, etc., going across, you start with hyphen, then slash, then colon. Which, why is the colon on the left-hand side of the keyboard? The colon is never on the left-hand side of the keyboard. Semicolon, which is a separate key from colon, which, again, in the U.S., never a thing. Um, then the parentheses smack in the middle instead of by 8, 9, or 0. Um, the only thing that really makes any sense is that the quotation mark is in the middle on the far right, because that's similar to the U.S. keyboard. And then things like the period is in the bottom left, which is, again, opposite. So I really don't know. You know. They had full freedom to put these keys wherever they thought was best. But the layout to me doesn't strike me as what they thought was best. It was just like throw keys at the wall and see what sticks. But like I said, we've become extremely used to it. You know, you can learn anything through repetition and muscle memory. And, you know, I never have trouble typing a period even without using the, you know, space, space. Oh, yeah. You know, that was the other thing is that, you know, you got lots of software features along with the keyboard. Um, now all the way to you know, predictive text, um, but also things like hitting space space to get period space at the end of a sentence and then auto-capitalizing the next sentence, which I always turn off. Yep, same here. <laughs> but, you know, there are certain quirks that you get used to. Like, I know that if I want an ellipsis, I have to go there and press and hold on the period and you get an ellipsis, that kind of thing. Um, of course, you have to memorize that on a standard keyboard, too. It's option semicolon because that's how it's always been on the Mac for years and years and years and years. Um but yeah, the the iOS keyboard is somewhat different, you know, significantly different than the Mac keyboards, but uh we all accepted it for what it was. Interestingly, of course, uh just in the past year with the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus, the keyboard uh the first party keyboard got some updates and features in landscape mode. I'm looking at my brand new iPhone 6 because my 5S spontaneously died two days ago. Um, so I'm still getting used to all this. But one of the things that's interesting is that they added arrow keys to the landscape mode. And guess what? It looks a lot like that Apple II because it's got a left arrow and a right arrow and no up and down. Um, they also added dedicated keys for, uh, for period and comma. And they did one thing that's totally baffling, which is that, like I said, there are more of these like sort of mode buttons that you have to hit on the iOS keyboard. And one of the most common ones is the numbers and punctuation key. In portrait mode, that key is in the far bottom left corner of the keyboard. But if you switch to landscape mode, now only on the iPhone 6, that button moves. It literally swaps positions with the switch keyboard, the little globe icon. They switch positions so that you can never be sure where that key is going to be. <laughs> That's going to be... I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever get used to that one. That's going to be possibly as annoying to me as moving the escape key for those VI users. And uh, neither of us have a 6 Plus, but uh, I think you found out there are some additional special keys on landscape there because it has even more space. Yeah, so they also added a uh, cut and copy and paste buttons. The landscape mode on the regular size 6 also has an undo button. So those sort of all cluster together. That's exactly like those function keys up on the uh, 
extended too. Yeah. You know, right? Those those four functions, the ZCXV uh functions. And they also added for something they, they're like, uh, we've got room for another button. What what should we put here? And someone raised their hand in the meeting and said, uh, bold. <laughs> so there's a bold bold button on the six plus. Um, but no italic button. I, I don't know. That that's a weird one. That's one of that's another one of those keys where like if you saw that on a physical keyboard, like as a new feature, you'd be like, why is this here? But I think the interesting thing with the iOS keyboard is that they have the ability to play around with it, um, you know, make design changes, refinements. And now the, you know, the world is wide open for third party keyboards and people can uh, rearrange the keys however they like. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've made it all the way from the Apple II all the way up to the iPhone 6 Plus, I think. We have run the full history of Apple keyboard design. Yeah. Um, we may have gone on too long, but I hope not. I hope if, if you've made it this far, you are a proper keyboard nerd. <laughs> and thanks for coming along on the ride. As we said at the top of the show, you can find the show notes for this episode, which will be complete with photos of every keyboard we've discussed at simplebeep.com if you listen to this soon or at simplebeep.com slash episodes. Yep, and they'll be there for a long, long time, we hope. As always, you can go and send feedback on our website. There's a contact link right at the top. And we added a new little feature on there. Just, you know, you give your name and your feedback and just a couple of checkboxes. If you're cool with us reading your feedback on the show or using your name on the show, um, you can opt in or out of those. So if you have feedback, leave it there or... Uh, you're always welcome to talk with us on Twitter. We are at simple underscore beep. If you'd like to follow us personally on Twitter, I am at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks very much for listening. We will see you next time.